Welcome to All Together Now. This is Eleanor LeCain. We're all facing unprecedented challenges these days in our personal lives and in our world. The key to being able to survive and thrive in these challenging times is resilience. Our guest today has a powerful story of redemption and resilience. Carrie Blakinger grew up in a suburban family hit a major rough spot in high school, turned to drugs, got hooked on heroin, spent many years in the hell of drug addiction, then spent serious time with more hell in jail, and eventually turned her life around and is now an award-winning journalist who reports on conditions in US prisons and the need for reform. How did she recover? Carrie wrote a book about her experiences just released called Corrections in Ink, a memoir. She is here with us today to share with us her story of resilience and hope. Carrie Blakinger, welcome to All Together Now. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah. So you've got an amazing story here. Let's start with why did you write this book? <laughs> um, I mean... There's a, I guess there's a short answer and a long answer. So I started, um, I mean, just a couple of days after I got arrested and I was in the county jail and there was another woman there who was like, hey, you know, you should, you should start keeping a journal. Maybe someday this would make a great book or at the least it's too crazy not to write all this down. Mm-hmm. So I did, I started keeping a journal. And then when I got out a little under two years later, um, I thought I would try to, you know, see if I could put it together into a book. And I sort of, I don't know, cobbled together a loose chronology. It was more a chronology than a book at that point. And I had no idea what to do. I didn't really know a lot about writing. I definitely didn't have any sort of platform or writing experience. And um, I didn't know anything about selling a book or how to go about doing that. So my early efforts there did not work out. And I just decided, you know, I was just going to set it aside and become the best reporter that I could be. And if at some time a book just worked, I would do it. And if not, whatever, no sweat. And then, you know, I guess that was probably, I got out in 2012. And then probably around like 2018, 2019, um, you know, some agents had interest and were like, hey, do you want to write a proposal? Is this a thing you would consider? And I was like, sure, I guess this seems like the time that now this actually makes more sense. Um, I think initially I'd been more or less just wanting to write something so that I felt like I had not wasted all that time. And so like I was pulling something positive out of the wreckage, which is still something that is, you know, such such a rewarding part of being able to write a book like this. But I think by the time that I actually wrote it, there were also much more important purposes to writing it because Mm -hmm. by that point I'd become a reporter who covers prisons. And I have a lot of people um, in prisons who write me and tell me how much it means to them to hear my story and to, you know, see me reporting on theirs and to see someone who did time and came back and is actually, you know, still concerned about the people inside. Um, So it sort of felt like it had, like I had an audience that um, particularly wanted to hear my story at this point. And I realized that there were also things about my story that would be important for a broader audience to hear, not just people behind bars. No, exactly right. And um, I started off by talking about the power of resilience and you've certainly got 
a, a powerful story about resilience and everybody needs that now. I mean, COVID times, economy, et cetera, et cetera. But um, let's share some of your story with our listeners here. Um, back in high school, you were living with your family in suburbia. You were doing well in school. You're a promising young skater competing at the national level. What happened that you got into drugs? Uh, well, my skating career fell apart. I was skating pairs, which is where the guy, you know, throws you around and it looks all dangerous and stuff. And, you know, it was pretty much my whole life. I was leaving school at 10 or 11 every day to go to the rink and train. And I would be there until five or six at night. And then I would do my homework in the car on the way back. And skating was kind of my entire world, my whole social circle. Um, it was how I defined myself and how I envisioned my future. And then after our second year of competing together at nationals, my partner decided that he wanted to branch out and try to find another partner. And I just fell apart. Um, you know, skating is the kind of sport where there's so many more women than men that he could find a partner the next day. And for me, it could be weeks or months or never. And after, you know, weeks turned into months and I started to realize I was going to end up needing to take a season off. Um, I panicked because skating is also the kind of sport where you know that your career has a pretty tight timeline. You know, there are not 40 year old national competitive figure skaters. You know, I, you know, it's, it's the kind of sport where you've been being told that you're getting too old for like as young as you can remember, mm -hmm. you know, there's always somebody younger coming up behind you. Um, I remember there was a 23 year old skater that um, was jokingly referred to as the old lady. And, um, you know, I think that 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 shapes your understanding of, you know, your identity and, and your, you know, the, the fact that your skating identity is going to come to an end quickly. And, um, you know, I I realized that that year off could be, you know, the end of my skating career, or at least that's what it seemed like at the time. And I kind of describe it as, uh, you know, as it's as if like, you know, you got divorced and fired from your job and also every job forever because <laughs> that's like what it felt like like I thought this was just the end of what I envisioned for my life and I mean obviously at 38 looking back at that I would handle that differently but I was 17 and not a particularly stable kid I was pretty volatile and you know definitely had been struggling with some mental health issues and I didn't really have the um, capacity or the support to um, to handle that that loss. And so I fell apart and I um, got into drugs that within a few months of when the partnership ended. And, you know, by the fall, I was living on the street and doing sex work and addicted to heroin. And it was, you know, it wasn't, it was a very rapid, you know, unraveling, but it wasn't as if I, you know, some smoked pot and then it was some gateway drug and suddenly I'm doing heroin. I was in a very purposely self-destructive place. And, um, I, you know, I, I think I smoked pot once and then did ecstasy and then went pretty much straight to heroin. Well, you're an overachiever. So you were overachieving in skating. Yeah. <laughs> you're overachieving doing drugs, right? Right. Yeah. Very. <laughs> yes. Um, I appreciate your dark humor. Like this is <laughs> I feel like non-journalists are so appalled by that, but that is exactly the way that we would joke about these things. Yes. <laughs> All right. 
so um, as all this was happening, somehow you managed to get into Cornell and you were on the dean's list while you were taking the drugs as someone who worked hard in college and tried to get good grades. How did you end up getting on the dean's list while you were taking heroin? Um, I mean, you know, I think part of it is that I, I mean, obviously it helped that I was smart, you know, mm -hmm. um, but I think a lot of it was that it, I was so desperately determined to stay in school. And that was because to me, that was the one metric to show that like, I was still okay. Like there was still some, um, hope for me or something like this was sort of I'd grown up in a family where um education was important and my mom was a teacher my dad was a lawyer and I think that I was sort of taught that education and doing well in school was almost tantamount to a moral good mm -hmm. and so as the rest of my life unraveled and I was you know a mess in pretty much any other way you would look at it um if I could still just stay in school and do like respectably well, um, I could tell myself that I was not completely lost. And obviously, you know, there is, you know, there's, I, I looking back on that, I, you know, I'm not in any way endorsing that people base their self-worth on their ability to do well in school. But that is, you know, that is what I was doing. And um, that is part of why I so desperately clung to trying to, you know, not fail out of school and to, you know, do reasonably well in the interim. Yeah. Um, I'm just amazed that you could take the drugs and then write these papers that would get you A's. And I, I don't know, maybe the drugs helped with the higher energy or greater clarity or you overcame <laughs> all that to be able to be clear. Um. I mean, I think I missed a lot of deadlines and I got real creative about asking for extensions. Um, but no, heroin does not help you think better. I mean, I was, you know, I was also doing like math and stuff to stay up. But um, no, I'm confident that my schoolwork would have been better if I were not on much drugs. Okay, <laughs> that's good. I'm sure the parents out there will be glad to hear that message. Um, so, so you got arrested. Um, you got caught with a big bunch of heroin and you got sentenced and spent a couple of years in prison. What was life like? I mean, here you're going from a suburban middle-class family, Cornell, now you're in prison. What was that like? Yeah. I mean, you know, to be clear though, I wasn't going like straight from a sort of, you know, suburban middle-class family to prison. I mean, at that point I had been doing drugs off and on for nine years. I'd been homeless. I'd done almost every kind of sex work imaginable. You know, I'd been, um, I'd been in some really dark places. I jumped off a bridge trying to kill myself. You know, I'd been, um, you know, assaulted and robbed and, um, I'd, I'd been through a lot. So I, I was coming into this with a very different, when I, by the time I got to Cornell, I had a very different set of experiences than most Cornell kids would. Mm -hmm. uh, but that said, I also still did not have any real interaction with the criminal legal system. I had had an arrest when I was in New Jersey, but I got let go ROR. It was a very small amount of drugs and I'd never actually seen the inside of a jail cell. And, you know, coming into that with no understanding of, um, you know, what jail or prison was like was like, 
I mean, actually, when I got arrested, I don't think I actually could have told you or could have explained the difference between jail and prison. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of people may not know that difference, but basically jails are built for a shorter term. They are run by the county and that is where you go until you're sentenced. And, you know, usually if you're sentenced to a year or less, sometimes in some places, two years or less, you would stay locally in a jail that is run by an elected sheriff in many places. Now, some places it's, Mm -hmm. you know, some sort of administrator and some places they call their jail something else. But most states, that's how it would work. And then once you are sentenced, if you're sentenced to a felony, um, if you're convicted of a felony and sentenced to more than a year, then you would go to state prison. And um, I didn't. You know, I didn't understand that distinction, but I also didn't understand so much else about jail because nobody tells you how it works. It's actually um, more confusing than frightening. You know, you might sort of think it's, Mm. you know, really scary. um, But in the moment, you know, nobody seemed particularly like threatening or intimidating, but it was all just so confusing. Like I didn't know. And you just don't know what comes next. Like, I didn't understand why I would get locked in a cell and other people wouldn't. And it was for, like, routine medical isolation. But nobody tells you that. You're just suddenly locked in a cell and everyone else is out walking around. And you don't know how to, like, make phone calls or how do I get in touch with my family? How do I get money for stamps to write people and tell them where I am? How do I get assigned a lawyer? Um, When's my next court date? Is it important? What does it mean? Like, when do I get bail? Nobody explains these things to you. Um, You know, I did get assigned a lawyer. I don't remember anything about any process of asking for one, but like he just showed up one day and, you know, I would only know that I was going to court when the guards would come in and be like, hey, court. But I didn't know what it meant. Like, what is this court dated? Is it, is it important? And, um, you know, these are things that you might know if you've done a lot of time, but for your first time in, nobody explains some of the very basic things about, what the rules are, why things are happening to you, what comes next, you know, what things you need to do to, you know, take care of yourself and, you know, look ahead. And, um, you know, it's all just, it's all just more than anything confusing. Wow. And um, you wrote about that you hoped if you talked to some of the prison guards and the people in power enough that they'd see you as a real person as an individual how did that work out i mean yeah so it was a small jail and there was i think only about 40 guards maybe that worked there total 90 some prisoners maybe i mean detainees rather um and you know we it was more casual some of the guards we called by their first names and you know some of them would talk about themselves and you know i talked with i talked with them a lot I some of them because I just I just wanted to understand these people in charge and like who they were and you know why they were so different from us and I think on some level I also thought that they would you know if if they if I could see them as human and they could see me as human like the interactions would be different it would you know I don't know be more willing to treat us with dignity and respect and I realized I think only after the fact that that was just not the case. You know, the staff that will treat you like a human will treat you like a human. And the ones that won't, there's no amount of, you know, talking to or having conversations about ping pong and gardening that is going to change that. Yeah, it's interesting. When I saw that, I was reminded of reading Nelson Mandela's autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom. 
And Mandela, you know, was in prison for many years in South Africa. And he said he would do anything the guards had asked to do unless it was something that was just to uh, undermine him or be disrespectful to him. And he would just draw a line and then not cooperate. But he, he did talk to the guards. Of course, he had more time uh, over the many years. And it, he attributed that um, those conversations with the guards for him to understand the Afrikaners in South Africa who were in the government. And uh, eventually, as you know, he came out and became president. And it had deepened his understanding of people who he had seen as the enemy, but then he treated them as human and hoped that they would respond in kind. Some did, some didn't, like your experience. But anyway, you might find reading his autobiography on that point interesting. A Long Walk to Freedom. But, so uh, you said it was easy to get drugs in prison um, or jail. Were you in prison or jail for the two years? Well, you start in jail and then you go to prison. So, okay, so I did, yeah, I did... 10 or 11 months. I did about half of it in jail and about half of it in prison. So you said it was easy to get drugs when you were behind bars, um, but you decided not to do that. Why did you choose to stop the drugs at that point? Um, you know, I think there's a few things. I think that first of all, I was by the time of my arrest at a point where I was ready to make a change. And I think if I'd gotten arrested a year earlier, I would have just kept doing drugs. Um, but by that point I was definitely ready to, you know, to change things. And I think actually any sort of catalytic event, like if I had just graduated and moved and left town, or if I, you know, gone to rehab or, um, you know, any number of sort of major life changes would have, I think, been enough at that point. Um, but instead, obviously I ended up behind bars and, you know, I think also part of it was. I remember, you know, the person I was dating would visit. Um, and, you know, I remember one visit, he came in with uh, clearly fresh track marks on his arm. And he said that he'd fallen into a pot plant and it had stabbed him only on the veins. <laughs> and, I, and I was just like, I was watching him tell these ridiculous lies, which he'd been telling me for a few weeks at that point. Like, I'm not dumb. I did heroin. I know. I, I can see. And, um, and I was just so grateful to not be that person, to not be the person that needs to lie to my friends and family and, you know, lie to myself and be disappointing all the people around me. And, you know, that was that was a moment that stuck with me. And there were others. But I think, you know, that sort of thing and seeing addiction from the other side, um, I think that was key. Yeah. And um, you were a student in Cornell when you got arrested and then sent to jail and then prison. What did Cornell do when you were arrested? Is that when they suspended you, expelled you? Yeah. So when I got arrested, they, um, there was some debate about like, you know, what they were going to do. We sort of had to hash it out, but initially there was some talk about whether it would be an expulsion or a suspension. And it ended up with a, suspension of three years to indefinitely and after three years I could you know apply to get back in if I could show evidence that I'd done work to rehabilitate and so what did you do 
I mean, I was, I did, you know, whatever drug classes I was supposed to do in prison. I mean, there wasn't a lot, you know, mm-hmm. I did a six month drug program in prison. I did a nine month outpatient thing afterwards. Um, I took a vocational class in prison. Um, you know, I, I, I forget what else. I mean, it's been a while, but, you know, I came up with sort of a laundry list of things, which um, in a lot of ways felt meaningless, but I did what I was supposed to do and I didn't get in any more trouble. And then, you know, I got a bunch of like recommendation letters from, uh, you know, my parole officer and my former advisor. And, you know, I think I'd gotten a job by then. Mm-hmm. So I was already working at a at a local paper, not for long, but I'd been there for a few months and my editor wrote a recommendation letter. Um, and, you know, a lot of these things I was incredibly lucky for. And some of these things are, you know, probably only possible because I came into it with privilege that a lot of people in jails and prisons don't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but those, you know, that those things seem to that you know the things that I could show them that I had done seemed to placate them because they did let me back in after three years and then you finished up at Cornell I did yep yeah when you graduated I graduated on I think it was um see I guess it must have been like four years to the day after I got sober so I got arrested on like the 19th of, of December in 2010. And I, you know, and I, I, I don't know exactly when I stopped doing drugs, but I think I, I'd always counted my, my sober day as the 20th the next day. Cause I came in with some drugs and I was very high when I got arrested. And um, I remember that when I graduated, which I guess must've been 2014, maybe it was 2015. Um, it was December 20th. So it was, you know, four or five years to the day. And um, it felt like, uh, I don't know. It felt like I'd run a marathon, like I'd started a 5K and it turned into a marathon because, you know, I I mean, here I was at, you know, 28, 29, 30, I guess, um, finally graduating college after having started at, you know, 18, like anyone else. And uh, I'd finally, after all of these years of mistakes and missteps and, you know, regrets, finally gotten to the end of it. I must have felt awesome though right that you did get to the end of it because it must have felt for a while when you're in the middle of it you don't know it's going to end right yeah totally so um and you mentioned which i love your relationship with your dog charlotte and that um your dog charlotte helped you get back on your feet when you got out of prison how how did a dog help you get back on your feet well, when I got arrested, um, I didn't know what happened to her. She was, I was not in my apartment at the time and she was. And when I went to jail, I didn't have any means of checking on her. And it, you know, was several days until I found out that the property manager had found a family to take care of her. And they said they'd give her back, but I mean, I didn't know if they really would. And when I finally got out, I, um, you know, that was the first place I, I went was to go see her and to meet them. And they ended up becoming um, close friends. They became like family to me. And I ended up only meeting them, you know, because of my dog. And um, I mean, that was not, that ended up being sort of one of the best gifts of it all. 
every time I visit Ithaca, I stay with them. You know, they are wonderful and are still like family. And I only met them because of her. That's great. Well, I, I've got my cat, I, yeah, but I just hear all these stories. There's some great films about dogs and dogs helping their owners. And um, we could have a whole, in fact, I might do a whole show on dogs and pets and just how healing our, our pets can be. So um, you, you're out of prison, you graduate from Cornell, um, now what? You decide to become a journalist. Um, yeah, I actually, I mean, I, I got into journalism. Like I said, I got a job before I actually got back to school. But yeah. um, when I, you know, when I started, I mean, it was so random. There was someone that I used to get high with that called me and said, hey, I have a friend who's an editor and she's looking to write about women who've been in the local county jail. And are you willing to interview? And um, and I said, sure. And so this woman, Glennis, drove out to where I was in the middle of the country. Um, I was pretty much in the middle of nowhere to come interview me. And afterwards, she said, hey, um, you know, you, you I Googled some of your stuff and you, you know, you're a good writer. You want to try writing for us? Because I think she was reading my clips from when I'd been at the student newspaper at Cornell. Mm -hmm. um, but in any case, I jumped at the opportunity and I started covering small town board meetings in towns with like four and 5,000 people and watching, you know, old men argue about the size of the next salt barn and, you know, how much road maintenance is going to cost next year. Um, but I enjoyed it. It was, it felt like the first time that I was doing something that had value to other people. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, that, and that felt good and I liked it and I kept doing it and, um, yeah. And, you know, went on from there to covering criminal justice eventually and to getting into coverage areas that sort of hit closer to home for me. Right. Well, now you're uh, you've been writing some power packed articles about what's happening in the U.S. prison system. Um, and you've got this incredible perspective as someone who lived through it for a couple of years. So. Uh, so talk a little bit about how you're using your journalistic skills and experience now to help reform the problems that you saw when you were in the prison system. Um, yeah. So, I mean, as in, in, you know, as an investigative reporter, I try to write stories um, holding officials accountable and exposing wrongdoing that's not, you know, hasn't been previously covered. And, um, you know, that often, or not often, that sometimes, if you're lucky, has the effect of sparking change. Um, you know, as a reporter, I'm not actually, you know, a reformer or an activist or anything, but a lot of the stories that I report, if I report them well, can end up having that effect. Yeah. And, you know, the U.S. prison system, I think most people just don't think about it, um, except the people who are stuck in it. But I think we've got a very serious problem, this whole prison industrial complex, that there is a financial incentive to build more prisons, to staff the prisons, to actually have people become criminals as 
then creating the need for these prisons that they want money to build and to staff. Would you agree with that? Um, only kind of. I think that's so. I think that a lot of people, and I get this all the time when I tweet out a story that I've written, people will be like, private prisons are terrible. And this is one of the sort of common misconceptions that, you know, all prisons are private or that even most prisons are private. Less than 10% of prisons are private. So that means that most of the people that we are locking up are just costing us a lot of money and that's it. There's no one profiting from, I mean, not no one. I should rephrase that. There are people profiting, but it is not the act of, you know, it's it's not as if the state is getting paid more money for locking people up. And, you know, it's not like with the private facilities where there is a very clear profit motive. And I think that people can understand how um, warped that profit motive is. And it's a little harder to understand why mass incarceration even exists to this degree when you realize that the profit motive is not quite as clear for the rest of the system. Now, there are, of course, lots of people that make money off of um, incarcerated people. And those are, you know, JPay and Securus. Those are like phone companies. Those are commissary companies. Those are the companies that make the tablets that people have and use to communicate. You know, in some places, those are other contractors that are building that are, you know, making clothes. Some some prison systems, the prisoners make the clothes themselves. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of other outside entities other than the government that do make money off of incarceration. Um, but it's not the same profit motive that a lot of people think it is. Um, one of the other interesting pieces about the profit motive on or, or the, the economic drivers of prisons is that when prisons were, when there was like the massive prison building boom in the 90s, mostly late 80s into the mid 90s, um, as a result of the war on drugs and the uptick in mass incarceration, there was, um, you know, many states vastly expanded their prison systems during that time. I think at one point in Texas, they built something like, you know, two dozen prisons in like a year or two. Um, and there were a lot of states that saw similar buildups. What happened when that occurred is that in many states, they did this by putting the prisons in rural areas. And these were sort of promises of a job program to you know, revitalize uh, rural communities where there had been factories and, you know, um, other other industries that were dying or dead. Mm-hmm. And so in in a number of states, they began putting prisons in these very rural areas. And that was, you know, uh, I mean, the extent to which prisons have actually delivered on that promise is um, debatable at best. Um, but that was that is one of the other sort of economic drivers to think about when we're thinking about what profit motives have influenced mass incarceration. But I mean, I think that the thing that's a little harder to wrap your head around is that I think a lot of the impulse to, you know, increase mass, you know, increase incarceration to the levels that we have it was not necessarily about profit. It was about systemic racism it was about you know control it was about sending the right political messaging that would get people elected because some of the really draconian sentencing laws that have um, resulted in mass incarceration were sort of political ploys um you look at the rockefeller laws in new york um this was when rockefeller was angling for a presidential run and wanted to show that he could be tough on crime. And he was, he was the toughest in the nation and other states followed suit with mandatory minimums and three strikes you're out. And um, these 
these harsh laws that would put people behind bars for, you know, what we called um, football numbers. Yeah. And what was your experience when you were in prison? Did you think most people deserve to be there? Was society better that they were locked away or were some of them kind of there just because they were doing uh, something maybe they shouldn't have, but they didn't deserve to be locked up over it? I, I, I hesitate to say that anyone sort of deserves that. Mm-hmm. It's, um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that that's even the most helpful framing to look at why people are in prison. I, I, I think that a sort of more useful framing is really about public safety. And, you know, when we, at the, at the bare minimum, we would sort of expect that prisons would approve public safety, right? Like that's what they're there for. Right. Um, And I think that it might be a more productive metric to look at it in terms of does incarcerating this person in the long run increase public safety. And in many cases, it does not because the incarceration can be so counterproductive. You take someone who has few resources and often has a great deal of trauma and mental health issues, and you, you know, then lock them in a place where they are, you know, where their mental health issues are often inadequately treated if at all and you put them around a bunch of other people who also have you know mental health issues and you know you're you're taking people that have broken the law locking them up with a bunch of other people who have broken the law and hoping that they're somehow going to come out as productive citizens and that's a kind of weird model when you step back and think about it so i think that you know instead of focusing on as much on like who deserves to be in prison it might be um more productive to think about like who of the people that we incarcerate does it actually improve public safety to be keeping behind bars in these current conditions? Right. And the way the U.S. does it is very different than, say, in Europe. So uh, talk a little bit about what you've learned about the conditions in the U.S. prison system versus what the Europeans do. Yeah. So one of the really interesting stories that I came across over the past year was that um you know, the differences between the U.S. and European prison systems are significant enough that uh, Scotland recently refused to extradite someone uh, to Texas. There was a guy who had been arrested in Texas for, um, I think it was an aggravated assault for shooting someone, and, you know, went back to his home country of Scotland when he was out on bond. And then when Texas wanted to have him, uh, wanted to bring him back, wanted to have him extradited, it had to go in front of a Scottish you know, court. Um, I forget what they call their judges there. Um, and the Scottish court decided that they would not approve the extradition because Texas prisons were um, a violation of international human rights standards, that that would be out of compliance with Article 3 of the European uh, Convention on Human Rights. And Article 3 is a, is roughly the equivalent of our Eighth Amendment. It doesn't use the same language, but it's the sort of thing that bans cruel and unusual punishment. And Texas prisons um, did not meet their standards. And there was a number of, of points that were brought up in court as possible points of concern. But the one that ended up being the sticking point in the end was actually that the cells are not big enough. The cells in many Texas prisons are too small to comply with European human rights standards. And because the Texas prison system would not promise to house this guy in a cell that was deemed to be an adequate size, 
Scotland refused to extradite. And that means, you know, that he could just go free. Um, and I mean, that doesn't address a lot of the other conditions, but that was, I think that was surprising because I'm not aware of any other case in which it has happened that someone was not extradited solely over arguments about prison conditions. Yeah. You know, I wondered when I read your coverage of this European uh, kind of analysis of the U.S. prison system as being in violation of international human rights standards, I wondered if you ever thought about going on to law school and becoming a lawyer. <laughs> every address- day, dude. Like every day. I still think about it. I still be like, should I just quit and go to law school now? Like literally every day. <laughs> Absolutely. I encourage you to do it. You know, for most people, I give them the book. It's called 29 Reasons Not to Go to Law School. <laughs> but for you, Carrie, I think it would be awesome. Yeah, I mean, I've actually, I've spent so much time reading about the law in the course of my reporting. Um, but, you know, one of the big uh, questions about doing law school with a felony is, um, although an increasing number of states have made it clear that you can become a lawyer with a felony, it's not a given. And in a lot of states, um, it's not clear if you will pass character and fitness to be able to take the bar. And this has been litigated in some places, um, you know, sort of famously Tara Simmons in, I guess she's in Washington, um, ended up taking her case to the state Supreme Court after they said that she did not meet character and fitness and could not sit for the bar. And, you know, she eventually won and she passed the bar and is now actually an elected lawmaker there, but it's not a given. So, you know, that is definitely one consideration. It's, um, it's quite a gamble to think about dealing with going to law school and then finding out that, you know, you have to engage in years of litigation to be able to take the bar. Or you could find out now which, in what states can a felon take the bar? Oh, no, I found that out. But oh. the thing is, it's not a clear answer in many of them. For instance, in Washington, when that happened with Tara, um, somebody else in that state had previously been determined to have met character and fitness. And that was for, I think, a bank robbery or, or, or some kind of robbery. But then when she, with a drug charge, wanted to sit, they said that that was not going to meet, um, that she would not pass character and fitness. So it's subjective. So even if they allow felons in theory, they, you know, may decide that they don't like your felony or that you haven't made a compelling enough case. So it's a lot more of an unknown. And there are some states where it's just not an option. Um, Mm -hmm. But, you know, like, so I'm in Texas right now, and I know some people in Texas who have felonies and are lawyers, but it's still, it's not a guarantee. Yeah. Well, I, you're smart enough and you've got great research skills. You can figure out which states are more likely to allow you to do it and then figure out of those, where do you want to live? Um, yeah, nope, I definitely did that. And I just sort of felt like out of the ones I wanted to live in, you know, no matter what, it's still quite a risk. And I mean, I could do it. I don't know. But um, it is definitely a very high price tag, very high dollar amount of a risk. um, When you know, you don't know for sure if you can take the bar. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you could do like some states and I went to California and established residency. Uh, so I could go to Bolt Law School, which had the best quality legal education at the lowest price at the time. But that's why I went to to Bolt Law School and, and I loved it. I love law school. I think you would enjoy it, actually. Um, I think anyway, you probably would. Yes. 
there's a research project for you. Figure out which law schools will are inexpensive and good quality, and then what states could you go take the bar in that you'd actually like to live in. Um, but that raises a broader point that you bring up in your book, which is the price of incarceration doesn't stop when you serve your sentence, that once you're convicted as a felon, you know, that follows you really for the rest of your life. In, in what other ways have you experienced the restrictions like after prison, the restrictions of having that uh, label on you? Um, yeah, you know, it's, it comes up, it comes up at just odd and surprising times. You know, I've been out for more than 10 years at this point, And during the pandemic, I was looking for a new apartment at one point, And I had a hell of a time. Uh, you know, this is a 10 year old nonviolent conviction. And I, I actually just gave up and ended up like tweeting about it. And then one of my friends responded that, you know, she had an extra room. And that's what I've been doing since then is renting, you know, extra rooms from people I know, um, because it's been so difficult. Um, so many apartment complexes will just disqualify you forever because of a felony. Mm -hmm. And um, a lot of property management companies will do the same thing. Um, but I also have had trouble with, you know, just individual renters who are renting out an extra room. Um, and, you know, I think I didn't have as much trouble with this on the East Coast, but, you know, in Texas, this has been an issue. And, you know, there's all sorts of other random things like it's uh, Airbnb has a lot of restrictions um, about people with felonies. Um, and when I was like working at the New York Daily News and I was doing overnights and coming back from lower Manhattan at five in the morning, I couldn't carry pepper spray because in New York and New Jersey, felons can't have pepper spray. Um, which is just so random, you know, I, I don't even know that I would have known to look that up if someone uh, hadn't told me. And, you know, there's all sorts of other things, like a lot of dating apps don't allow people with felonies. I mean, they don't really have any way of checking that. They don't do thorough background checks. But, you know, if they find out that you have a felony, you'll get booted. And I actually wrote a story about that. But yeah, it's um, it's surprising to a lot of people because I've had a lot of people just be shocked that more than 10 years after the fact for a nonviolent felony, that there are still consequences and there are, and they're random. One of the things though, that is not a consequence is, um, you know, is voting. A lot of people think that you can never vote again if you're a felon. And in some States, there are certain felonies, which, you know, you are banned from voting forever, but you know, that has changed. And a lot of States have loosened their restrictions on that. So in many states, as soon as you're done with probation or parole, you can vote again. There's been some famous cases, um, notably Crystal Mason out of North Texas, where people have gone to prison for voting, but that was because they were still on parole, which, I mean, again, I think that's messed up and they should not be sending people to prison for trying to vote. Um, but, you know, in most states, you can vote either when you get out or when you get off parole. And I think it's really important for people to know that because there's a lot of people with felonies that think they can categorically never again vote. And that is not true. Right. And and we've seen some spectacular progress on that in fairly recent history. The state of Virginia, uh, Governor McAuliffe, the Democratic governor of Virginia, was very strong about um, enabling former felons to vote. And also in the state of Florida, uh, the 
it went to a vote of the people in the state of Florida and people voted in big numbers to say, yeah, once you've served your time, you should be able to vote, like welcome back to the community. So um, I think that alone is good grounds for you to go to law school, Carrie. You can take that thing and get the voting rights for felons and have it go national. <laughs> Yeah. So um, talk about some places that you apply for a job like boom, and you can't tell maybe that it was because you have a felony on your record, but that it is absolutely harder to get a job. I wanted to mention to you um, this guy, I don't know if you've ever come across him. His name is Jeffrey Korzenik. Does that ring a bell for you? No. Um Jeffrey Korzenik is a very high-ranking businessman, and he is absolutely dedicated to making the business case for why companies should hire people who have criminal records. He is like on a mission. I had him on my show. You might want to listen to that recording. Okay, we'll do. Yeah. But he says on, you know, on both ends of it, he said on the very practical issue is right now we have a big labor shortage. A lot of companies are desperate for workers and he maintains the labor shortage is going to continue for the foreseeable future. It's not going to stop after the pandemic. So companies need workers and they need talent and they need to expand the pool of who they consider as people that they would hire. And, and he says, he calls them the second chance hires. He says, if you go for second chance hires, you're opening up a pool of about 70 million people. That's how many people have a criminal record in the country. So um, you can check out here, here. I feel like I'm giving you a, um, a course here with reading assignments, <laughs> but you're a Cornell graduate, so you're gonna enjoy this. But uh, he's got a book called Untapped Talent about how to do second chance hiring. And he, he intended it as a guidebook for the companies to say, here's how you can do it successfully. And he also like he dedicates the book to people who have been in prison or are now out of prison to say, hey, don't give up on yourself. We need you out here. So, you know, really go for this. And it's amazing. And this is a guy, he's the chief investment strategist on one of the country's largest commercial banks. So he's very high ranking in Wall Street area, but he is absolutely dedicated to helping companies hire people. And, and he says the kind of things that you do to help a um, second chance hire be successful are often the same kind of support you'd want to do for a lot of people who come along. They may not have ended up in jail, but maybe they come from less resourced families or families with dysfunction, or maybe they've got a learning disability. I mean, there's all kinds of issues that people have, even if they never uh, end up going into the prison system, but that you workers need support to be successful. They need mentors they need clear direction on what's your job and what's expected of you. Um, you know, all kinds of things like that that could help tens of millions of people even beyond the ex-felon. So I think, uh, I think 
that there's a crusade waiting to happen there. So um, we've got just about uh, 10 minutes remaining. And I have a series of questions that I want to make sure I ask you before we sign off. So we're doing uh, rapid fire now? Yeah, we're going into rapid fire mode. <laughs> it's kind of like, wait, wait, don't tell me. Like, boom, boom, boom. <laughs> so I'm really curious now that you're kind of on the other side of this whole experience and you're doing amazing work, some great articles you've written. Looking back, what would you say to that girl in high school when she experienced that blow of losing her skating partner and she felt losing her skating career. Um, what would you say to her when she first started thinking about using drugs? Ah, so um, it doesn't matter. She wouldn't have listened. <laughs> no, really, I mean that. I mean, I was struggling with um, I was struggling with suicidal depression and some very serious eating disorders. And I don't think there's anything that I could just tell me that I would have listened to. Um, I also think I, I've never had a good answer to this question. People have asked me in a variety of ways, but I feel like at the core of it, what that question is kind of asking is like, what is the silver bullet to avoid addiction? And I obviously don't have an answer to that. Like just because I survived addiction doesn't mean I know how to solve it or prevent it. And I never have a satisfying answer for this. And, um, you know, it, <laughs> I feel like I let people down every time with that. Every time they ask me that question, like that is one thing my book will not do is it will not teach you how to not become a drug addict. Like it might teach you a lot about prison and about how we handle addiction wrong. And, you know, mm -hmm. how about resilience or, um, you know, about the ways that, you know, I mean, ab about the ways that misogyny infects our system and racism infects our system, but it won't teach you how to not have mental health issues and it won't teach you how to not become addicted to drugs because um, those are bigger questions that no one's really ever been able to answer and certainly not mm -hmm. me. Let's look at it a different way and say, you know, you've been through enormous challenges, which we've discussed here. Uh, what do you think is the key to you having the resilience to turn away from drugs and to get your life back on track? Oh, um, I mean, I think that a lot of it for me was, was learning to sort of harness my existing obsessive tendencies into a less self-destructive direction. You know, so growing up, I think I was obsessive about skating. And then when my skating career fell apart, I was obsessive about drugs. And then when I got out of prison, I became obsessive about my work and journalism and writing. And I think that having something else to be obsessive about, something to, you know, fill the hole where skating had been and then where drugs had been, I think that was so key for me in terms of turning it around and, you know, finding something that looks like resilience. Yeah, and some people oh, talk about having turning their lives around, it's about doing something that they feel has meaning that make, you know, and I read with great interest and, and really felt you in the book when you talked about 
identifying the problem of of the, the teeth and the dentures and um, the care of the people in prison. That like that's a whole area that was just through carelessness or cruelty was left unaddressed, but that you identified this as an area of need, you wrote about it, and because of your story, there were changes. The state senator saw the story and changed the the care of prisoners, uh, the dental care of prisoners in a way that really had a positive impact on their lives. So that's got to feel great, you know, that feeling of having a, a positive impact from your writing. Yeah, it does. You know, one of the difficulties with so much of this prison coverage, though, is that so many times when you do something that has positive impact, which is rare to begin with, um, you know, it's the the system reverts to its old ways eventually. Um, And one of the things that I think as a reporter covering prisons and covering criminal justice, you know, one of the things you have to sort of grapple with is, um, you know, what that means about your work and its value and um, you know, this is something I think about a lot because Texas prisons continue to be a mess and often in some of the same ways they were several years ago when I started reporting. And I know that there's a lot of people in, you know, the sort of policy and advocacy space that um, they really despair over over this and over what feels like the futility of working in those spaces in a state like Texas. But I mean, I think in the prison system, when you're telling stories that have impact, um, you know, it's it's so hard to see if this is sort of two steps forward, one step back, or if this is just like one step forward, one step back. Um, and obviously, with you know great in- investigative reporting, you hope to have lasting impact, and um, you know that's just not always the case. I'm sorry, I'm such a downer on this one today, but I'm you know Texas prisons are really bad right now, right? And um, you know just this week, just in the past week or so, I learned about two more guys that have burned, um, you know, died of smoke inhalation or or fires in the past, you know, couple months. And this is now um, because there are not functional smoke alarms in most Texas prisons. Um, four people have died from cell fires in the past eight or nine months. Um, and, you know, I keep writing about this. I've been writing about that since 2020. And, you know, it's still happening. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was uh, another riot this week and well, nobody nobody was hurt. But, you know, it's the same issues that have always been at play in Texas. Right. And and we can point out that there are other models out there. We can look to Europe. In fact, if you watch uh, Michael Moore's film, Where to Invade Next, he does a whole section on prison system in Europe and went to their like, maximum security prison. <laughs> Just like yeah. how unbelievably yeah. different it is. And it, is, it is unbelievably different, although... Um, you know, I mean, that's one of the challenges with reporting in a place like Texas is that is not going to happen here. So then the question is, right. OK, like what happens in the interim? Like what is the next step that Texas can do? And it seems like in many of these southern states, um, nothing, you know, oh. like nothing that, uh, that the legislature in a place like Texas or Alabama or Mississippi um, right. is 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 going to want to fund and see through. Um, well, Texas is not going to become like Europe. But on the other hand, uh, there's other models out there in the United States, like Delancey Street in San Francisco. 
uh, which is for- Texas is not going to become like San Francisco either, though. No, you know? no, clearly not. But you could have a Delancey Street kind of program in Texas or in every state. I think we could have one in every state in the country. So it's not going to completely replace the prison system, but it could start to peel off some people. And um, it's, you know, drug treatment and um, rehabilitation, it's job training. The whole thing has no staff because it's and no funding from the government because it's financed by the jobs um, done by the people doing the job training. They have companies like a print shop and a Christmas tree sales and all that. It's a fascinating model. I think we could have one in every uh, in every state in America. So maybe that's a more practical way to start. Um, one last question. Um, I wanted to talk about your parents for a minute and their role throughout your ordeal. And you talked about how tense your relationship had been, you know, through high school, et cetera. But there was a shift after you were arrested. What happened? Um, So I I actually don't, um, I know I don't generally answer other questions about my parents beyond what's in the book. Um, They, you know, had asked, uh, to be in the book as little as possible. They weren't really interested in, um, you know, being sort of public figures like that. So I sort of kept the role to a minimum. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I, I I try not to, um, you know, I don't know. I try not to add anymore because I really said what I can say about them in, in the book. Yeah. All right. Well, let's put it this way. Um, do you have any advice for a mother or a parent of a young person who's struggling of like what they can do to help? Yeah, I do think that, you know, I think that one thing that parents ask me frequently is, you know, how much can I help? Is it, am I enabling? And I think that this whole narrative is in terms of what counts as enabling is, is not helpful. Like this idea that you have to cut someone off entirely to show that you care about them is just false. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, you know, sure, you don't need to be going out and buying your kid heroin, but, you know, m- my parents helped me pay rent. And I think that that certainly saved me from doing worse. Like there are ways to continue to support people to the extent that works for you and your relationship. Like, I think that line is in a different place everywhere. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think a lot of it is, you know, in, it, I mean, one of the sort of tests as to whether this is enabling, is this, you know, something that you want to do to support the person, or is this something that they're significantly pressuring you to do? Um, but I mean, I, I think that the whole narrative in terms of the idea that any support is enabling is really dangerous because mm-hmm. you want to be there for the person when they come back through when they're out the other side you don't want them to think that you deserted them because of their addiction um and you know you don't want them to think that you won't be there for them and sure being there for someone will look very different when they are in an active addiction versus when they eventually get sober so again like you know doesn't mean you know you just do whatever they want but i do think that it's important to understand that you know you don't need to listen to people who are telling you to, to, to cut all ties or to not offer any support or to write someone off. Um, if that doesn't feel right to you in your situation, then maybe it's not right. 
Yeah, and I love the way you wrote about your parents' support was really a lifeline when you needed it, even though they weren't sure at the time if it was helpful. So uh, excellent. Well, that's all the time we have. Carrie Blakinger, thank you so much for being with us today. Enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for having me. Good luck. Let me know when you go to law school. <laughs>